This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 152. My guest is Anna Cabral, the co-CEO of Sigma Lithium. Sigma has recently begun to commission their operation in Brazil, which should be shipping product in the first half of the year, and we'll get into the details of that. I have described Anna as a force of nature. I think uh, after listening to this episode, you'll understand why. Aside from working tirelessly to get this project up and running, Anna has done a great job of marketing Sigma. And if you look at the stock performance versus many of their peers, the combination of having both a quality asset and a gift for presenting her company and her passion for sustainability and ESG to the investing world certainly shows. Anna and I talked for a little over an hour, and then I closed the episode with some of my thoughts on recent happenings and the year of 2023 in general. Without further ado, Anna Cabral. Anna, and I don't think I need to use your last name anymore. I've become like uh, Madonna. (laughs) Welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. No, I mean, look, it's unfortunate that I'm Anna Madonna just because there just shows how few women exist in the sector, right? That's sad. It's a sad reality. So hopefully there'll be a whole generation of first name based women working in this sector, chemicals, industrials, materials, mining. Hopefully, our daughter's generation will set out to change this. Well, we'll get into that a little later. But uh, as we start this podcast off, this is your third appearance. We've lived through the progression of Sigma. I remember meeting you several years ago at a benchmark event, and it was a very different world at that time. But now you're already in commissioning, getting ready to start producing product. Give me a little color on exactly where you are and when we can expect to see you shipping product. Yeah, we set out a very detailed commissioning plan. Um, As you know, we got both Calvin and Brian on the ground with both feet on the operation living in Arasuai permanently, right? So we set out a detailed commissioning plan because we wanted to just demonstrate how we've been hitting every milestone. And we've already hit two of the milestones we set out, meaning we were able to start the dry plant, the the crusher, successfully in December, right before Christmas, as promised. And we were were able to start the pumping systems just now. So two of the majors. Then the other next milestone is to have crushed product on the ground, which shall happen by the end of January. Then in February, we would be starting the wet plant, how they call it, which is the dense media separation plant. We got six DMSs, so it's not exactly a simple system. We added the ultra fines 
circuit and hence the increased recoveries we have. So we're going to give it from February to April to adjust that system. So by April, we're planning to fully run the DMS plant at, you know, initial batch of product on the ground. And then the first shipment, it's a derivative of what's what's been discussed with, with each of the receivers of the client. Remember, our product is sold by third parties on behalf of LG. So each party receives a certain size batch, which again, at 20,000 nameplate per month, it takes either a month or so for that to get shipped on a, on, on a commercial shipment basis. So, but product on the ground, April. That's the plan. Given about eight weeks, right, from February, March, April, for adjustment of how these six DMSs will work together and in sync with the crushing plant, which is, shall be running by the end of this month. So we have a very detailed plan, and we did it on purpose because Brian and Calvin have so much control operationally of what is happening there that we felt comf- comfortable fiduciarily, I mean, we're listed in the U.S., of putting out such a detailed commissioning schedule as to give investors sort of the ability to track it milestone by milestone, which is quite unusual when you see publicly listed companies putting out commissioning schedules, right? That's the degree of comfort we have about hitting our milestones almost on a monthly basis between now and April. So let's take a step back and just for people who aren't super familiar with your project, phase one is a capacity of 270,000 tons? 270,000 tons. So 270,000 tons of what I like to call battery-grade sustainable concentrate. It's, it's, it's a special material because it's granulated. And so it's, it's a notch above to the extent that because it's granulated, 0.5 millimeters to 6.5 millimeters, it creates productivity. It Less material is required to produce the same tonnage of chemicals. Specifically, 7.26 tons of this battery-grade sustainable concentrate is required to produce one ton of hydroxide. So the granulation, the high purity are the two key ingredients here that make us like to brand it battery grade. Sustainable is because it is really indeed socially and environmentally sustainable in a league of its own. Most people use eight as a rough number of yield from spodumene to lithium chemicals. You're saying it's 7.26, which is Actually, probably better than a Greenbush's number. So let's take a step back and talk about why your material is easier to process. Granulation. So eight was set out, but not everyone is eight, as you know. Some folks out there are 10, nine and a half, nine. So when you start adding impurities like mica or potassium or sodium, the, the alkaline, iron oxides, are big impediments to, you know, optimum chemical conversion. So to the right of green bushes, you got people all the way up to 10, 11. You have some horrible conversion rates from 
concentrates your chemicals, as you know well, right? Uh, you taught me this. I yeah. learned a lot of this from you. <laughs> so, so going back to why are we different from green bushes? Because they cross to powder, they cross to micron, given that they've got a DMF, but then they have a flotation circuit. So we have similar purity levels on the alkalines and similar purity levels on iron oxides. However, we're granulated. So the granulation, the 0.5 millimeter, the six and a half millimeter, that's what creates more productivity at the kiln, at the calcinator. So with that, we got a little boost. We got the 0.8 extra because it's granulator versus nine. Yeah, and just to be clear, the, the green bushes guys would be offended at eight because they're they're seven five. It's the other guys that are probably eight, but we don't need to go down that path too far. Recovery. When we last talked, you were talking 60%. Where does that stand now? Yeah, we. and one thing that's important about recovery is global recovery versus plant recovery. So when you think about global recovery, we also account for a 15% loss in the crushing. That's a very important point. So when you look at the current standard concentration, which is a 5.5%, we are looking at global recoveries of 65% for phase one, global. And that accounts for 15% loss with the fines at the crusher level. So we're being very sort of transparent as far as our recoveries go here and giving global recovery numbers as opposed to just giving great plant recovery numbers. You can teach me something now because just bear with me for a second. It seems like that's actually low if you are going to market your tailings because then there's going to be a yield out of your tailings. Totally. And we're not factoring that because that goes back to your point, which we loved on your latest uh, newsletter, right? The tailings market is what we call the swing market, like DSO. Tailings are a notch above DSO because it's processed lithium. When you look at the DMS choice we made, which was made on a number of grounds, including environmental, so it's CAPEX, ease of commissioning, the risk, environmental. When we chose flotation, uh, DMS over flotation, we had a number of you know significant elements that would favor DMS, right? What was the downside of DMS? We knew that we would leave recoveries behind on the tailings. So, so when you look at our tailings, you have the unrecovered lithium that is a result of the choice of technology we made, which has so many other benefits, including allow us to produce this granulated material, right? So that makes those tailings more valuable, way more valuable than DSO. So think about it. In a world where DSO is publicly quoted at $1,000 a ton by our peers in Australia, think about how much I'm getting for my tailings with the leftover 35% lithia that we're not capturing on this DMS, in addition to these levels of purity. So we're getting a pretty good buck for tailings in this environment. Now, that is not permanent. And I make it very clear when we discuss this with investors. I know a baseline for tailings, though. What is the baseline? My local industry. Which local industry? The old-fashioned Porcel- uh, called porcelanate, right? Which is high-end ceramics uh, for, now it's it's become a massive industry. Even they're producing what we call fake wood floors. So the, Brazil is one of the world's largest exporters of ceramic floors, high-end 
ceramic floors for high-end constructions in the world. That industry is what we call the base bid. So the base bid for those tailings is around $200 in a world where, you know, we get to sort of the base levels of this industry, whatever that will be. So we know where it is today and we know the base bid. So when I talk about recoveries, I don't even incorporate the tailings in that yield. This is just pure plant, meaning dry plant and wet plant. Global recoveries of both plants, the green tech plant. So let me make sure I understood what you just said. If you had a world with lower lithium prices, say we went back to $900 a ton for spodumene, you would still have an economic value of 200 for this base business because that's the economic value to the producer of that product of the lithium. Yeah. All right. Exactly. So fair and enough. And it's right here in my backyard. It's in Brazil. So just, and, and there's a whole construct for them to get it from Brazil because it's, it's fantastic material. They won't get their hands into product like that for their own kilns, right? That's the point. Okay, and I don't want any hate mail from the listeners. I'm not projecting a return to $900 spot. I mean, we'll get into that a little bit later too. You mentioned a name that we didn't hear last time, and that was Brian, who would be Brian Talbot, who was previously with Galaxy, then Allchem. Tell me a little bit about the significance of bringing him onto your team. Oh, it it was a major, a major step for for Sigma, because when you think about the construct of our team, it, it's it's really that it's team, it's a team effort, right? So it has been Calvin and I, and then I pulled in my business partner, Dan Marcelo, to basically support me on a lot of the external focused investor focused activities, corporate finance, fundraising. We've done all of that in house, mostly through the private placements in our investor base. So I've had the benefit of a partner in my side of the business for some time. And as Sigma grew, Calvin didn't have the benefit. And, and he was, it, it's a lot harder to recruit on his end, given that the skill set, it's, it's so circumvented to a number of individuals. So following the merger of Olacobre Galaxy, I mean, Brian was the natural name because he's the world's expert in dense media separation circuits. I mean, he's not only had that history at Galaxy, but he comes from uh, operating Bakita successfully, uh, which is which is a very relevant petalite mine in Africa. So he's got over 10 year plus of experience in DMS circuits globally. He's one of the few people in the world with that skill set. So we were honored to be able to attract Brian to the project to the point where in the last pitch, uh, we were fortunate enough to be joined by one of the relevant uh, shareholders who happened to be at our office, uh, Richard, and he made the whole, you know, full scope pitch of how much support we had from shareholders. And I think it also helped sway Brian to the extent that he saw the, you know, the, the size of the capital base supporting Sigma through these family offices that we have here at A10, you know, throughout the world, which now are quite obviously, you know, uh, a key source of support. But back then, uh, it wasn't that obvious. It became obvious when we fully funded this plant on an equity basis last year through a private placement, just like that. Right? Uh, and then again, this year, when we closed $100 million of shareholder debt, just like that. But two years ago, when we started a courtship, it wasn't quite obvious. 
And so Brian joined Calvin uh, in the place where he was most needed from Perth during the design stage. He has had his imprint on the design of this plant uh, throughout the detail engineering uh, that took place uh, 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 in 2021. So he's been with us uh, for over a year now, and, and we are honored, honored to have him. It's It's been, and he's a delight to work with, and the two get along because they're both South African. So <laughs> on top of that, I've got two South Africans now on site. So there's a cultural fit there as well. In December, you announced the potential to expand to over 100,000 tons, which by any measure would make you a major lithium player. Tell me a little bit, and 100,000 tons of LCE, to, to be clear. Tell me a little bit about that and the timing that you would foresee for that. No, that was, that was again, the result of the, the power of the combination, the power of the team. That idea was generated in the technical team. It wasn't even driven by us here in the strategy team. Why? Because why are we expanding? Well, because we can. So, and how can we expand? Well, we got these resources to back up this ramp in production exactly when lithium, low-cost lithium, high-quality low-cost lithium is needed the most in the market. So the technical team constructed, I mean, Brian and Calvin constructed a way to merge phases two and three, essentially by building, we're not building a new design. We're just building the two trains at once. So it's essentially a double liner uh, built at once. And then when you think about the CapEx, which is kind of where we worry here about on our end, and when you think about the additional infrastructure, it wasn't that much more infrastructure from a plant perspective, meaning environmentally, we need another thickener. Yes, we probably need an expansion of the substation, but it's justifiable infrastructure. So for $155 million, it made complete sense to basically bring forward production, right? And then what did, what have we done on the back end? So we were a 13-year mine, um, a 13-year project, integrated mine, concentration plant, battery-grade, pre-chemical, as you call it, concentrator, concentrator. So that was Sigma with phases one and two. So with phases one, two, and three, we stayed at 13 years, even though we significantly increased the mineral reserves. So we increased the reserves in 63%, but we maintained the project life at 13 years because we are upfronting production. So instead of making it a 20-year project with two lines. So then now, what is the next step? And we signal that in our last interaction. We're going to continue to work. And we're going to put out the mineral resource that's going to put us at the 20-year project life at that expanded capacity, which is the phase four, which that then comes at the back. Phase four will not have a meaningful impact on net present value because it will be what we call the material that will, that will feed these, these three lines once, for example, phase one ends its feed line of eight years. And then you have phase two and phase three. So we constructed the operation so that it's all geared towards delivering as much material as possible in the next five years when the market needs it the most for this, you know, uptaking electric vehicle demand we're observing 
throughout, basically, surprisingly, even in the United States now. We've already touched on it, but I have a another question. Last time you were on the podcast, I asked you with some skepticism whether battery quality spodumene was a myth or a reality. And you clearly believe the former. And I I wasn't really sure. You you made the case really by saying, if I remember correctly, your product opened up the world to enable marginal converters to make a better product because it was a simpler uh, raw material to produce lithium chemicals from. Now that you're dealing with the likes of an LG, when you talk to them, is that part of the discussion, the ability of a broader cross-section of converters? Does that make the tolling model work easier? It seems like an obvious answer, but I just want to hear it from you, uh, what those discussions have been like with customers. That was a disruption. The disruption that we brought to the sector wasn't green tech. It wasn't any of it. The disruption was in the business model of the sector. In other words, by getting this material of that quality to the battery makers, we enabled the battery makers to work with 10 converters and produce the same extremely pure, extremely high spec uh, chemicals that they need for their advanced, let's say, nickel-rich batteries, for example, nickel-rich cathodes. So that was a disruption. The disruption was in the business model, whereby by negotiating directly with the battery makers and the product became the disruptor because the product, chemically, we discussed it in a previous question, but the product has superior chemical uh, properties and that once this product is delivered to converters, who in, which in turn were tolling for some of the majors of the time, right? They are experienced. They just did not have access to great feed. So once great feed is delivered to them, they have the chemical capabilities and the chemical prowess to produce the same ultra-high purity hydroxide required for the nickel-rich cathodes, for example. So this was the heart of the discussions with the battery makers, that this product, is tested to enable them negotiation power because then all of a sudden the way they strike agreements commercially with the chemical industry changes. They're striking it for an advantage of power whereby I'm striking an agreement where I supply you with material, I'll pay your costs, and then we'll discuss your profit. Three separate buckets, your conversion costs, the raw material is provided by the client and then they negotiate profit margins as opposed to one big bundle uh, that was the case before. So it was an unbundlement of the discussion commercially between battery makers and uh, midstreamers that was enabled by this disruptive battery grade material that we set out to produce. And again, on the back of decisions that were basically environmental because we did not want to tailings them. That was the one principle that I had to attain to 
because that was the reason why we, we moved the fund to invest in Sigma in 2016, to demonstrate that we could do this without a tailings dam. And the one processing technology that would enable to do us enable us to do that easily was the media separation. And even then, as you know, we were the guinea pigs of the, the tailing circuits. We can talk about that later. But because of an environmental decision, we ended up with product that became the disruptive product. And we appended the business model of the way battery makers interact with chemical converters and basically creating a wider range of chemical converters uh, that are now able to supply top-end battery makers. And the names, we all know them. They're fantastic. They have the skills. They just didn't have the product. When you look at yourself as a 100,000-ton LCE producer and you see what's happening in North America with the incentives and the desire to have product that doesn't go through China, how do you think that will impact? Obviously, a company like LG can do it either way. They have a huge footprint. Essentially, the battery industry in North America is largely becoming a Korean enterprise. How do you think about that? Do you think about your business as serving the global market, or do you not worry about the ultimate destination of your product? Well, we like to think of us as friends of the world. I mean, there's lithium for everyone here. We're so large. So we try to keep our supply balanced, right, in terms of... Where is demand coming from? You got North America emerging. So when you think about the reality of North America, it's being built now, which is fantastic, right? Finally. And then you're going to have the, the the what we call the, the onshoring materializing two years from now. Could this plant, even a chemical plant, would take two years or a while to be built and what have you. So we would be supplying, you know, the current footprint of the industry and the footprint of the industry that we see from the, the middle of the decade onwards. So why? Because if there's one thing that that's special about this material, in addition to its technical qualities, it's the fact that today it would sail through, and I have these words, sail through from a client, the border adjustment mechanism the EU is planning to install. And that cannot be said of everyone. So we are, to begin with, sailing through entering Europe because of the environmental and social sustainability elements and the care with which we produce this. So then that, that said, we're friends with everybody. So obviously we would supply North America and we would supply China. China is Brazil's largest trading partner, extremely welcome in Brazil. So we supply everyone, really, what, without what's... any discrimination as per, you know, zip code. In fact, at that scale, we cannot afford not to supply everyone. We need the entire industry uh, as clients in order to move that kind of material, right? That amount of material. Let's take a step back for the listener and just clarify what the border adjustment means. Yeah, the border adjustment mechanism is, is sort of the latest taxonomy of the carbon tax, let's be blunt, right? So, and that's fair. As an environmentalist, I think is the fairest idea that come out that's come out uh, in a while. Why? Because if you have a continent and you're requiring the industrial operators of that continent to abide by, abide by rigorous environmental criteria, you need to adjust 
product coming into that continent that is not necessarily produced abiding by the same rigorous criteria, because otherwise you're going to have unfair competition. So it's what we call leveling the playing field. So as the asks European industry to go square out green and and adjust itself environmentally to lower its carbon footprint, well, that costs money. So that has an impact on costs. So as you have product entering and competing for the same clients, you need to adjust that product proportionally on a carbon basis. It's, it's the most intelligent mechanism I've seen as a climate activist in, in decades. And it isn't a carbon tax, it's, it's what we call incentivizing an industry to go green because otherwise you disincentivize an industry to go green because why bother? I just move my operations offshore and just bring it in here without adhering to your high criteria. So if they hadn't done it, they'll be promoting a deindustrialization of Europe, which obviously is not something that is in their radar. So it's brilliant and it's clever and it's everything the world should be thinking about as far as getting us all to decarbonize because it's a global endeavor, right? I want to thank Zelandes for sponsoring this episode. Zolandes is enabling lithium projects to get to market faster, more efficiently, and with lower costs. More lithium sooner means the energy transition happens faster. Find out more at Zolandes.com. Well, while we're on the topic, of Europe, and it doesn't just apply to Europe, but I, I think they're kind of the poster child for everybody wants green, everybody wants the energy transition, but mining gets opposed and protested, and nimbyism seems rampant in Europe. So as you have been traveling the world in the past year, talking to people about sustainability, talking to people about doing the right things environmentally, how do you, what you just talked about with common sense, border adjustment, yet these guys don't want mining and, and the world can't have the the kind of EV penetration they want if mining's not done in some fashion. How do you reconcile that? Well, I think the mining industry has a lot to answer to, to society around their past practices. And, and I say this as a miner, right? Uh, in my home country, encountered a picture when we made this investment of a sector that had single-handedly lost its social license. This is a poor country. Then 60% of the current account surplus is reliant on mining or natural resources extraction in some way. In the country, society was shunning mining altogether. That was 2016 in Brazil because the sector hadn't risen to society's expectations of how the sector should behave in the 21st century. And I say it because we put a lot of our own capital and we, as I said at copy this time, we forsaken value to show that we were walking the talk, essentially, right? So... What I think about mining is that if you adjust the industry, if you mine responsibly, if you embrace the community, if you bring everyone along, 
if you create collective value, the industry is a force for good. And that's what we've done in our region. We became a force for good because it was a region that did not receive any investments at all. 94% of our region was dependent on some sort of government aid. And this company, which is more visible for its mind, even though the plant, the green tech plant, creates all the value, has become this transformational engine in one of the poorest regions in Brazil. So Brazil is poor. Is a poor country. This is poorer than Brazil. So this is index of human development equivalent of Bangladesh in the second richest state of Brazil. So it's the poorest of the poor. And we will go in there and we are just transforming the place. You can't find a house to rent. You can't find a hotel room to rent. Investments coming about. GDP of a town doubled. It's just boom town over there. So it's fascinating how an industry that had its social license shunned in the country years ago now becomes this force for good. And we've shown the way. What is the way? You embrace society. You bring them along. You bring people with you, right? So I think part of the bad reputation mining has acquired in the developed societies is resultant of this legacy. Now, what do I think will happen in developed countries? I'm not sure there's a way to set back the clock because developed countries have a lot of alternatives. You can get investments using this, the human capital of that country in a different manner. Now, developing economies or poor countries, like I, there's no euphemism for Brazil. Brazil is poor, right? So you have regions, and some of these regions are resort reach, which are ready to embrace these companies on an integrated basis. So you, you add value and you extract. So you have the mine, yes, but we also have this plot where you take this mined product and you add 20%, 20 times value to the product, 100 times value to the product. So I'm working with mine product that I sell for 100 times the value. So this is where the magic happens, right? And that surplus, that extra value created is what allows me to siphon it back into my operational budget and affect social transformation on that scale. So it's just a way to say that mining it correctly in the right jurisdictions, or it, let me just rephrase that, mining it correctly in the jurisdictions that welcome mining and then adding value to the extent that it's doable in those jurisdictions and then shipping out finished product usually intermediate chemicals or chemicals or what have you, to Europe, to North America, is what I believe will be the future of this industry. If you can do all of this with low carbon, you hit the holy grail for electrification. You don't see yourself becoming a chemicals producer in Brazil. Sigma and its next guardian, right? Not the fund I run, right. but the next guardian could very well become probably the greenest chemicals producer in the world in Brazil. Fact. Why? Well, we have natural gas, abundant and cheap. Is this, And we have renewable energy, abundant and cheap. And we have the, the battery-grade, high-purity concentrate that Sigma has. So on an integrated basis, a guardian that understands the chemical industry you know, would actually be in a position to produce the lowest carbon hydroxide in the world, hands down. Well, that that was right? actually that was so, actually my point. 
is that not me when you Someone started else. when you started you didn't have the money you didn't have the market you didn't have the kind of tailwinds you have now and when you talk about the future guardians of that entity of sigma if you're at 100,000 tons and you can produce you're going to have great cash flow for a number of years and you're going to throw off enough cash to make whatever investments you need to make which wouldn't have been your situation when you started planning this i see it as a natural extension of of what you're doing i i, I agree completely and i think brazil is the perfect jurisdiction and if you think that the world is competing for this zip code where you're going to have the green low carbon transformation into chemicals i'm a huge advocate for brazil what, now, who is going to be doing it? Uh, Sigma, for sure. Under our guardianship, most likely not. We're not chemical experts. I don't have a chemical team. I would have to bring a whole team. And that was not my business proposition when I set out. When I set out, what I set out to investors in 16, and I reinforced that promise publicly in, 16, in 18, Calvin and I have been very clear as that where we were going to go. And we went further than expectations in, in the sense that we were going to take the asset to production. Then it's way more than just the phase one we set out publicly to do in 2018 when we when we became publicly traded. Now, the natural extension is quite obvious. I mean, we're building a house by foundation. Which kind of foundation? The right ones socially sustainable, society is on our side, the community is on our side, they see the value, they see we're returning spades to the community, we're paying the royalties, that's a key thing. Look, when I made my keynote speech at COP this year, we showed environmental social investment in three buckets. It is not just the capital you deploy on the circuits and on the technology. You have two other elements. Their key part of that is the value you forsake when you make some of these hard decisions. And that's even harder because you have to forsake value early on, not to end up with a bad environmental legacy, which is what we've done with phase one in preserving the two pit structure and preserving that water uh, creek in there. That cost me 25% of my NPV. At the time when all investors saw it was one deposit. It was painful, right? We were worth $200 million and I was giving up a quarter of it, right? 25% more or, or plus. Then you have the second piece. And today, if you look at the NPV of phase one today, that's half a billion dollars in forsaken value. It's a lot. So then you've got the investment value, which is the $130 million we deployed on the plant that could have cost me 70 if it wasn't for all these circuits, right? Then, uh, and, and and that's a lot, but in comparison to the half a billion I left behind, that was a lot harder. Then you have the third leg, which starts now in production. We voluntarily decided to collect the royalties, which are just the mining royalties, I could have collected that on my mind in the final product. So we are now collecting the royalties in the final bill of laden price, uh, bill of lading price of this battery grade concentrate. So we're collecting royalties on whatever the shipment price is, $7,000 today, 
2%, collected to the municipality. It's a bonanza. It's an over 13 years. That's another half a billion dollars of extra tax we decided to voluntarily pay. It's the exact opposite of what the sector did, at least in my country. So it just shows the depth of the commitment. Why? Because what is what what is it that we expect them to do with this money? We are not going to provide education, sanitation, basic services. The municipality does. But we need to create that level of GDP, which is the government spending, enrich them so that they can provide proper education, sanitation, basic services to those communities, health, education, and sanitation, so that the community doesn't expect us to do it as a mining company. So I'm enabling the experts, the municipality, with funding by voluntary tax collection so that they can go ahead and deliver that. That's huge. So I got half a billion of voluntary tax collection on the royalties. I got another half a billion of forsaken value. That was the most painful decision we ever made here. And I got the investment, which is 130 million. So the investment itself pales in comparison with these two other legs of this tripod decision on making it fully sustainable, right? So from the hardest to the easiest, the hardest one was the forsaken value. And this is why so many mines end up the way they do, because when you start and you have no money, nothing, and you're really scrambling for those early dollars, which are hugely diluted. So make decisions like that early on cost you a lot in credibility, in skepticism, in, you know, are these people, you know, bunch of hippies, they know what they're doing, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's kind of the painful part. The second piece is kind of, okay, I'm going to make an investment is green technology. In our case, it was kind of obvious, clean tech, green tech. Again, no one saw it, but there were a few folks that understood it. We did it. And the third part now is just a natural derivative. It's become relatively controversial. You're doing voluntary. I said, yes, I am. And, and I say it with pride because I don't want to mess up with those who don't do it. I'm not saying they're not doing it. I'm saying I'm doing it voluntarily. It's added. What is the total governmental royalty burden from any any two percent? Two percent. It's fine. Yeah. So two percent over but, my gross revenues. Fine. It's in my model. Well, by world standards, that's not a high. No, Talk to your brethren exactly. in South America, especially the Chileans. You've got a good situation. But this is how you prevent that from happening. You see, yeah. you actually you actually voluntarily create that government cushion at the municipality because in Brazil, the royalties, 75% go to the municipality's treasury. So it's money in the towns. And if you think about GDP, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I'm a trained developmental economist, right? There are three levers of GDP, income, which is consumer spending, private spending and government spending. So you solve consumer spending with employment and salaries. We indirectly employ 13,000 people there now, directly 1,000. So that's consumer spending right there. Then you've got private spending. We're the largest investor in the region by a factor of 40, the second largest investor in the state. So that's private spending. 70% is local, meaning Brazil. 70% of our capital is Brazil, and we prioritize locals. We created a concrete industry, cement concrete around us, 
because we wanted local suppliers. So that's private spending there. And the third GDP lever is the one that was lacking. And that's the one the population looks at the most because that's the services, education, sanitation, health. So how do we get it done? We can't do it ourselves. We're not equipped to do it. We don't know how to do it. We need to fund those who are equipped to do it. Hence, you know, the extra tax collection so that the municipality's treasury is full for them to go ahead and do all of that. So is the triple is the triple leverage of GDP growth that enables you to kind of lift an entire region with you. So it's a science. I mean, economics is actually a science and you measure these things, right? Well, it's the dismal science. Let's let's be let's <laughs> okay. be clear. <laughs> I learned this my whole life. I get it. I'm used to this. But but you can scientifically measure the GDP levers and yeah. you measure the same way you calculate GDP and you can you can these are measurable metrics, right? It's not sort of, you know, all yeah. I think. These are mathematically measurable metrics of growth, right? Of of GDP growth, GDP creation. Let's talk about the market for a minute. When we spoke on your last episode, the chemicals price was not 40. Can you believe that? As we speak today, and there's been a little bit of a dip that everybody's in all in a kerfuffle about, but price hasn't gone down much. And it's is probably a brief period, at least in my estimation. We're in the 70s, let's say. What do you see happening in the coming year? That's the billion, trillion dollar question, right? Well, I loved your quote. Can I quote from you? Because your newsletter was very popular with my investors. Just to be clear, she's she's talking about a LinkedIn post (laughs) post I put up a few days ago. So if you want to check that out, it's it's on the website, globalithium.net backslash articles or LinkedIn. Please proceed. I highly recommend everybody. It should be a must read because it's probably one of the best posts on pricing and on logic of price calculations and price formation I've seen in the industry this entire year. Ultimately, when the high end of the cost curve is lipidolite, when DSO is flowing, which we just saw last at the peak of last cycle, 2016-17, and when you got the infamous king iron brine being talked about today, again, those are the high, high cost brines, you can't reconcile that. The numbers don't add up right? How much does it cost to get lipidolite? How much does it really cost to get the high cost brides uh, out of the ground? So those are the numbers that if that's what we're relying upon to to basically fill out our supply bucket for demand, well, prices won't go down anytime soon, right? Certain banks that are forecasting 11,000 for carbonate in 2024 actually have a spodumene price that wouldn't allow that to happen. So the analysis is completely disconnected. We won't mention any names because that's not who we are. But uh, if if you weren't with me, I'd probably mention the names. But uh, you you bring out the best in me. So uh, thank you, thank you. I will move on. Recently, the U.S. has passed the Inflation Reduction Act and really shown a willingness to put investment into the entire battery supply chain. This kind of governmental support, which in the U.S. we haven't seen in a while. What do you think the significance of that is for the battery industry, but more importantly, the lithium market? 
Well, look, I almost cried because I couldn't believe Biden managed to do it. It was just a glorious thing that he did, timing it before midterms. For me, it was the same moment. It was like the only time I got so into something. Let me just put it that way. The last time I got so emotional about something was into in the Paris Agreement, right, in 2015. Uh, when when you see finally the because you need the U.S. on the table, you need China on the table. Otherwise, it won't happen for all of us. You can have Europe leading environmental all day long, but that's just a part of the equation. The planet needs the U.S. and China collaborating, gaining ground on 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 decarbonization. So when the Green Plan, as it used to be called, uh, was passed, I was so I, I just. I couldn't believe it. I was so emotional. I thought it was amazing. Amazing. It was a masterstroke. So that will do it. That will do it for the U.S. And you see it already uh, reverberating in terms of the industries preparing themselves, the supply chains adjusting, because it's a massive market. And, and what's interesting is that the energy crisis has helped the market because the U.S. consumer is being very focused on total cost of ownership of the vehicle. And the demonstration of that is in the wait list of now 150,000 and counting for the lightning uh, truck uh, that Ford has offered. So that consumer is worried about how much it costs to run a non-electric version of his truck. So is a consumer that wasn't there before and now it is. So it's almost like the perfect storm for the Biden plan for the IRA, as they call it in America, yeah. to 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 take shape because you have now a consumer that's worried about how much it costs to to just keep running their their gas guzzlers, right? Well, in the case of Ford, they've raised the price of the Ford Lightning by forty percent since it uh, was first announced. So um that that may become problematic and i think they actually underpriced it when they first released it but that may have been intentional to get the backlog but uh, in any case it uh probably will be the leading us made uh from a legacy producer uh vehicle and so we're we're, we're waiting and to that's see the that. sig- that's the significance of it because if you think about a few years ago they weren't even on the map Right, they were discarded from from the map. Like you had GM with both Tesla, Tesla, the supreme king of electrification, and then where's Ford? And all of a sudden, with one master stroke, they're on the map with a, with the boat, with a with a with a with a truck, right? So with this massive waiting list. So you see the. So what I'm saying is that you see the 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 strength of the U.S. consumer with the value proposition of it, when the value proposition bodes well with their own value proposition, which was, okay, total cost of ownership. So each consumer has their own levers, right? And the U.S. consumer's lever was hit with the energy crisis. When you started to see gas, I mean, I don't remember gas, $4, $5 ever. And I've been, you know, around the U.S. Since- Not in America. Not in America, right? I, re- I, was- I remember 19 cents, <laughs> but this run-up was was record. Even, was, even- it, it, it's a number that shocks people, right? So we used to high gas in Europe, we used to high gas in Brazil, but not in America. So yeah. all of a sudden, it it so you stroke the consumer at the right time. It's I mean, look, it's fantastic. What else there's to say? It's the most brilliant, and he was 
perfect timing. So I sometimes get frustrated with people criticizing. He always misses this and lacks that. Guys, I mean, the significance of this in America, uh, in a year like this, it, it was kind of a window, right? He had that window and he pushed it through with a clever combination of timing, taxonomy. It's just fantastic. It's fantastic. It's a huge step forward for your country. Okay. It, it's, it's, I understand. You like it. Okay. I love it. I'm like, As... I'm an environmentalist. What would what's not to love about it, right? Well, I, I think I think it's basically an evolutionary process because there was like you said, you didn't like the criticism, but it it does need to be refined to be effective. And I think I think that'll happen. But uh you know, we can talk about that next time. So we but have but look, but that's look, let me just say something. I've been around legislation my whole life. It's any piece of legislation doesn't come out perfect. You have amendments to legislation the whole time. So the fact that legislation was enacted, it put it on people's mind that, okay, this is new legislation, so it's here to stay. So it switches mindset. And then you go and amend and adjust, improve, enhance, friends list, include, include friends, befriend, unfriend. <laughs> I mean, you got a lot of people that didn't like to be unfriend. New friends, swipe left, friends. swipe right, whatever. Right, but, <laughs> but the point is, legislation has been enacted and, and you got people say, oh, it needs a whole uh, permitting. Well, there's a whole different conversation. The legislation is in place. Investments been allocated. Budgets have been set. So it's major. So I'm a huge fan of Mr. Biden for doing that. What question didn't I ask that you would like to talk about or what did I miss? I think, you know, the pitfalls and, and, and I want to talk about the pitfalls. And, and and I remember a podcast I heard very attentively. You did a Ken Brisson at Pilbara because we always looked up to Pilbara for the same reasons we looked up to Galaxy and to everyone that came before us. And I like to say that we sit on the we stand on the shoulders of the junior companies turned successful producers that came before us, the Australian hard rock producers, right? We learn from from their, you know, uh, from their uh, paths. So we learn from where they got right. We learn from where they got wrong, and we are kind of the the we have the benefit of of their trailblazing path. So I listened to Brisbane very attentively, and he said, and I have to reinforce: markets underestimate the endeavor that it is to take a project from greenfield to producer and is that nine month analogy i like to make right it takes time so you had this flood of investment going into the sector in 2021 it was fantastic but we won't see that investment becoming product in a while because it takes time these are natural resources so it takes on average five years for a mine plus three years for further downstream processing, concentration, what have you. So you're talking about eight years from inception. And it's not a coincidence when you look at the statistics of the successful juniors turned producers. Everyone is in that zip code. Uh, What we call today near-term producers, Sigma, Lithium Americas, and Core, and the successful junior producers, Galaxy, Orocobri, Pilbara, you know, the lot, right? They are nine to 11 years zip code. So it's it's a number that that's posted by everyone. So is the analogy of the baby. 
You okay, can't okay, wait, 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 wait. You're going to blow my rapid fire question here. Okay, go All right, okay, got so it, got we're going to transition to rapid fire. I actually, most of these podcasts I've done lately, I've had to say, gee, I haven't seen you in a long time. But I did see Anna in New York a few weeks ago at a Deutsche Bank event. And I have my notes here on St. Regis Hotel Stationery that says, and I quote Anna, nine women can't make a baby in one month. All right, Anna, explain to me the context of that statement when you were presenting. It is a fair statement. I just, I had to write that one down. People forget that, you know, the ma- so Ken Brisson said that the magnitude of the endeavor of putting these companies into operation, it's so large. We have a thousand people at Sigma today. It's a massive company. And that's the point. Capital flooding into the, co- the, the, the sector in 2021 and in 2022 will just materialize into a product a while later. It won't come into fruition immediately so the relief in the supply in the supply curve in the capital and i'm at and i'm counting here i'm adding up the amounts raised by albemarle sqm alive and the majors right so for their expansions even an expansion is a massive undertaking so so when you think about the supply curve because what people want to know is what happens to prices and i say there's been a lot of investment there's going to be a lot of lithium well not really not really. Some of that investment will prove to be dud, right? It will fail. Some of it will succeed. And those who succeed, I mean, you lose pregnancies, right? You lose babies. It's scary. So these are very sad analogies. It happens. The, the mortality rate is very high. So ultimately, to survive, I mean, we saw four bankruptcies in the lithium space in 2020, 2019 cycle. They were painful. So all of that happened. People forget it was just the other day. So all of that capital from 21, 22 vintages, 23 has been, who knows what's going to happen now. The market's so negative. But the capital needs to keep on coming into the sector if those price expectations will materialize. Why? Because one needs more product. At the middle to the low end of the curve, you're talking about the superlative Mines, which are the Grotta do Cirilos, which we own, Atacama, uh, Green Bushes. Well, those are unique, right? Few and far between. But in the middle of the cost curve, that's where lithium becomes more abundant. So you need more of the projects in the middle of the cost curve where there's abundancy to succeed, to come to market in order for the prices to recede to the levels the industry expects, which are where? 30,000, 20,000, right? Will it? Well, we're talking 26, 27, at least. I would frame that a little differently. If you look at the surprises that we've had, supply and demand, the demand surprises have been almost universally positive in the last five years. The supply surprises have been almost universally negative in the last five years. And why anybody thinks that that is suddenly going to change, I will hearken back to your comments about admiring what Ken said, because I think that's absolutely right. It's really easy for a young analyst to read a DFS and just give 100% credit on all the volume and, and the timing. I 
have been around long enough to know that that's not going to happen. I don't see lithium price reconnecting with the cost curve in this decade. And if it is in this decade, it'll be 29, December probably. It's just, you can't have the initiatives that are out there to make batteries. And let's not even get into ESS. I, I spent time with an ESS producer today and their numbers are jumping as well. And their biggest concern is that they're unfortunately perceived as the the tail and the EVs are the dog. But if you look at their numbers, they're increasing pretty rapidly too. And it's it's not going to come uh, from all from retired EV batteries because there aren't enough of them in service. Anyway. There are not enough of them. Look at Sigma that you followed so closely, right? From birth to babies. Now, babies meaning product, right? So, you saw us being born and you see now having children, which is like delivering product, right? So it's a long life cycle. So think about this. Our DFS was published in November, 2019. What happened in November, 2019? We tried to raise $15 million to do detailed engineering. I couldn't get a dollar out of the market. This was December, 2019. It's three years ago. What did we do? We wrote the check ourselves because we can't. We took it out of the fund, made a $10 million loan. We refused to dilute the investors. So we did it. We embarked on detailed engineering, pre-construction, and it was brutal. We've had like 2020, 2021, and 2022. I was just telling you now, I don't think I remember even seeing my children. Calvin even left. I mean, we split. It's been like the toll, like in terms of being in every place at every time all over the world is being brutal, is a massive undertaking. From DFS to producer, we brought reinforcements. We hired the world's expert. We hired Brian Talbot, who is a, you know, a huge expert and a huge well-renowned name. I brought in my business partner from the fund, a very profitable fund I had to help me on corporate finance and fundraising and dealing with our investor base in the Middle East, which is sizable. So we have four very capable people working 24-7 to make this happen. It's a gigantic undertaking. And I remember Ken Brisbane to this day. It's underestimated by the market what it takes. An expansion, I know it's not that much easier because we talk to the producers all the time. It, it has the same pitfalls. So it is just, when I look at, price projections my first question is okay name names where are the low cost producers mid-cost producers in scale that you see coming on stream next year the year after the next between now and 26 27 28 who's credibly coming who's actually at that point of readiness well engineering readiness construction readiness right you're preaching to the choir you're just here. like three <laughs> exactly you just, right. the people just then, then, then people get at the loss for names. That's the point. I have That's never had well, yes. I this is episode 152, and I have never had this much <laughs> trouble ending a podcast before. <laughs> All right, I do have one other rapid fire question. If you could not live in Brazil and you could not live in New York or anywhere else in the U.S., where in the world would you live? 
Oh, I would live in Europe. Oh, my favorite Where? place is Give Europe, me a... of all places. Give me a name. Oh, well, well, this is the thing, right? I would live in Spain. In this, I mean, oh, me? In Spain. Which city? It, totally. Well, that depends. That depends on, you know, but most likely in Marbella. It, that would be, if I were to live anywhere, I would live in Spain. I mean, it's fantastic. It's the same culture. I love it. Okay, well, this is the first I mean, it's, time it's, I've had to <laughs> clarify three times what the final rapid fire answer is because it was poorly asked by me. Okay, Anna, thank you very much for your third podcast appearance. No, thank you for having me. It's always an honor to be here, and I so much enjoy talking to you. It becomes this fun conversation. And it takes us in directions we didn't think we were going to go, right? <laughs> that is absolutely true. Well, folks, Anna has left the building. That was an interesting discussion. Talking with Anna always is interesting. And I have to admit that she has changed my thinking on some topics, which uh, isn't that easy to do. So... Uh, thank you for that, Anna. Despite the fact that this is my second podcast of 2023, I did not talk about uh, things I'm working on for the new year. Most of my 30 years in the lithium industry have been focused on Asia. That's where the battery business grew. I lived there for 11 years. I'm really enjoying the fact that... Uh, as I wind down my career, a lot's happening in the Western Hemisphere. A lot is happening in North America. Based on the hearing this week, uh, we will now see what Judge Miranda Do decides in the Thacker Pass uh, case. It's critical that Thacker Pass moves forward. I hope it happens soon after Judge Do renders her opinion. Should that not go as I expect it to go? I still think Thacker Pass happens. It's just it'll be a continued circuitous path. If the United States is serious about building a robust battery supply chain, we have to have resource development. And even with some of the good projects we have going forward, we will be at a deficit until such time that recycling can uh, fill in gaps, and that's going to be a long, long time. I probably won't be talking about it when it happens. The beginning of the year has been incredibly busy. I've had a lot of conversations. I've been a guest on a couple of podcasts, as well as doing my own. The question that keeps coming up is valuations. It's fascinating that with lithium price more than doubling, in 2022, what has happened to the valuation of lithium stocks? And my response to that is, if you are a long-term investor rather than a trader, buy quality and stay in for the long haul. If you buy the best assets, you are going to be protected even when lithium pricing returns to the cost curve, which I've said it many times, I don't believe is going to happen anytime soon, but it will happen. However, the cost curve is bifurcated. Lapidolite, DSO is, you know, we've talked, we talked about it even on this episode, so I won't belabor that here. 
Once again, I do not give investing advice. However, I'm not reticent to say what I'm doing. I think everybody knows my largest holding is Lithium Americas. I own many lithium stocks. But I think as somebody who's fairly conservative financially, depending on the day, my lithium portfolio uh, value changes, of course. And with LAC being my biggest holding, what's happened to that stock in the last few months has been a little bit painful. But my lithium portfolio runs between 25 and 30% of my financial assets. Perhaps too big a concentration for some financial advisors, but I'm comfortable with it because I feel like I know the space fairly well. Yet if all my lithium stocks went to zero tomorrow, I could live the rest of my life comfortably. So I am not uh, betting the farm on any, any lithium stock. But as I've mentioned previously, it's LAC, it's Pilbara, it's Sigma, it's SQM, it's Standard. I've mentioned it before, but my recent buys based on the North American theme are things like Green Technology Metals and Patriot. And then recently, based on my last trip to Australia, ironically, this week I bought Latin Resources. I like the Brazil play based on what Sigma's doing. I think that bringing Peter Oliver on the Latin board was a brilliant stroke that will benefit them greatly. Peter ran the largest hard rock operation in the world for over a decade. He's well-connected across the space. He also advised one of the big four players in Tanchi. I think it's hard to overestimate uh, Peter's potential contribution uh, to developing that asset. That's why I have started to build a position in Latin resources. Again, not investing advice, not something I'm saying that you should or should not do. I am just giving you perspective on how I look at the market. But one thing I will advise anyone is to not put all your eggs in one basket, especially if you have the demographics of my average listener whose age is about half that of mine. A lot of people have young families and it can be seductive to think that you see lithium stocks taking off and I've had many people write me about the mistakes they've made in falling in love with a particular asset and then uh, not having any dry powder uh, when a market opportunity arises. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm coming up on an hour and 10 minutes. And as a reward to anybody who got to the end, the first person to go on my website, globallithium.net backslash contact and sends a request and wants to do a half an hour Ask me anything, call. That's the reward for making it to the end, even if you hit fast forward a couple of times. I know many of you Tesla investors and many podcast listeners are Tesla investors, are suffering through uh, the precipitous decline in the stock. And my thoughts are with you. I am actually also an owner of Tesla. But I, I think the thing is with these kind of investments, the bulk of my purchases of Tesla are still well into the green. And even though lack has fallen off precipitously recently, I think that's a blip. But, you know, my, most of my uh, shares were bought uh, 
certainly below $5. So I, I still don't feel too bad about that. Uh, my SQM is $23.19 for the average. Uh, standards, very low. Pilbara's $0.34. Cents. Two of the stocks I own that are I would consider adjacent to the lithium space uh, would be Neometals and Nano One. Clearly, Neometals had direct lithium uh, exposure previously. Now, they're more a recycling play and some of the other battery metals. Nano One clearly is not a uh, lithium producer, but they are an enabler of cathode and battery and the point i guess is that i haven't focused on the big four sqm is the only big four holding i have i do own a little bit of all chem but that's a legacy from having owned galaxy i did covid trades on albemarle and live and i think i've talked about that in the past just because the the values got uh, so low that i just felt i had to buy them and i flipped out of them at i guess roughly 4x for one and 5x for the other uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, but my point is that I've always seen picking up emerging companies in this industry as the better opportunity for me personally. You've got to do what's best for you. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that, except for to say, Nanakorobi Yaoki, fall down seven times, get up eight, and go. Buffalo Bills. Thanks for listening.